The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. I invite your attention, this is not a goofy pastor trick, I invite your attention to the small book of Nahum, or Nahum if you want to say it that way, uh, on page 782 of your pew Bible if you're there. Uh, sometimes our pastors, uh, we like to throw out random books for you to look up and get those puzzled looks. This is an actual book of the Bible. Uh, how many of you have read through the book of Nahum before? Some, some of you all. Uh, it's rare to hear sermons out of them. Not that we have the corner on the market, but certainly we want to dig in God's Word. So be the book of Nahum this morning, or Nahum, page 782 of your Pew Bible. Uh, Just a couple commercials before we begin this morning. We have been in our study of who God is, back to the basics. Uh, It's hard to believe since January, the first week of January. And our goal in this has always been the same, is that we would know this God who we serve and worship better and better, because we can never get a corner on that market for sure. And we have a couple weeks left. We have today, we'll do the goodness of God. Next week, the patience of God. And in the last week of April, we'll do the, uh, uh, the grace of God. And after that, what's, you say, what's next? Well, you can find everything. We have planned out all of our sermons, not written them all, but planned them all out for the whole year. Guys, on our website, towerviewkc.com, click under resources, you can see it. And in May, what we're going to do is go back to the Psalms and ask that question, what is worship? Is it a worship war? Is it not? We'll get there later. But I pray that you see through all these things that we do, church, is that it's about knowing God better. Amen? And that's why we do it, back to the basics. And this morning, we will be taking, secondly, part of the Lord's Supper as we prepare for that. How many Lion King fans are out there, just by curiosity? Any Lion King fans? Can you believe that the Lion King came out 23 years ago? a long time ago. Some of you aren't even 23. I'm barely 23. Um, But in a recent search about what are the top movies for revenge across the spectrum, and these are movies you shouldn't be watching to movies maybe like this that are okay, what is the top revenge movie ever made across the board? Looked at several websites, and the number one recurring factor revenge movie ever made was The Lion King. That surprised me because there was like Rambo was on there and it's like, oh my, some Chuck Norris films I'd never heard before, but I'm sure he blinked and they just all dropped dead, you know, (laughs) you know, Chuck Norris. But The Lion King is all about who? It's about Simba and his father, Mustafa, or Mufasa, sorry, Mufasa. You guys need to come up here and give this illustration apparently. But Simba has a wicked uncle, if you remember the story, his name is Scar, thank you. And he plots to take over Mufasa's throne. And Simba's a little cub at this time. And so one time, uh, Mufasa and Simba go out on a little, I guess you could call it a hunt. And uh, Scar knows this. And so Scar riles up all the wildebeest. And he sends them out there. And like any good father would, Mufasa, in the midst of this crazy time, saves his son Simba from the wildebeest being trampled underfoot. And he dies. Mufasa does. And Simba's left as a young king, young lion king, to be in charge. 
And eventually what happens, you know the story, many of you, that Scar kind of takes him out, and, and Scar eventually takes over for his, his, uh, his, his, uh, uh, his nephew at that point. But Simba returns as an adult, doesn't he? Simba returns, and he sets things right with his friends, Tim, t- I can't say these names, Timon and Pumbaa. And all you need to sing is, Akuma Batata means no worries. And, and if you want to know what happens after that, apparently, I did not know this, but apparently there are two other Lion King movies. There's Lion King 2 and Lion King 3. One and a half. Oh, one and a half. If you are bored this Sunday afternoon, you know what you need to do. You know, it's, it's crazy, isn't it? Even in our kids' movies, and I love this movie. It's really not a bad movie. But isn't it funny how even in our kids' movies, we have taken this concept of revenge very seriously, haven't we? Very, very seriously. That's why I'm glad the psalm says this. Psalm says this in Psalm 25, verse 8. It says, good and upright is the Lord. He instructs sinners in his ways. Friends, I don't know about you, but sometimes we, who is capable of finding perfect justice? We look at a story like Mufasa and Simba and say, man, his uncle Scar deserves the worst, right? He deserves the best. And, you know, we reject just vigilantes all across. We have order in our society, don't we? We reject that. We say that's crazy. And we fall back on a legal system here in the States, and we enjoy our desire for vengeance because we know sometimes even our courts seemingly fail us too, don't they? To a degree. So we go to the, the movie screens. But must we always choose between the two? Must we always have revenge? Or must we always have perfect justice? Will there be a day in God's goodness that there is going to be real justice for this world? Many of you are looking around thinking in this world, man, I'd love to see that today. But some of our deepest longings we find are played out better in our minds in box office hits than they are in the real world. Because in the movies, what happens? Usually the good guy what? The good guy wins. Not always, but usually. And we go to great lengths to ensure, it, it, man, if that criminal is not going to get the justice in the courts, let's make a movie about it because that will take care of it. Because we long for God's goodness to rule this land, don't we? We long for that to happen. And friends, that's why I'm so glad today, because we're in the small book, and it, you can say it five times fast. Nahum, Nahum, however you want to say it. Blake, how do you say this name? Nahum, that's right. That's the English pronounced. I'm doing more of the British. But friends, perfect justice has already happened for us. The big idea today is simply this. The riches of God's goodness in Jesus far outweigh the burden of guilt of our sin. Perfect justice has already happened. You know, there's that question that always comes up. Why do bad things happen to good people? Have you ever had that question before? Friends, there are no good people in this world. The Bible tells us that. But do you know it happened one time? And it happened perfectly to Jesus Christ. The perfect justice, the goodness of God that we long for in those movies was fulfilled in Christ and Christ alone. And God has revealed himself as an avenging God. We, you know, we, we, God is a God that's going to set all things right. And that includes people and places. That's part of his goodness. And sometimes we're conflicted because we know God is going to finally judge evil But we also know that puts us in jeopardy because we too have also done evil, haven't we? And this world has done evil. 
So we imagine some do that God is like us, that he will hate the things we hate, like the things we love. That's why God can only be a Royals fan, right? Because he has to hate all 30 other teams. Not quite. And we want the worst for the Hitlers and the Stalins, and, but not people like you and me. But what kind of God is that? That's a God that's partial and plays favorites. That's not a God that we see in Scripture. And because God is perfectly good, as we'll see today, he's not partial. And he must put an end to all sin and all sinners because his justice is perfect. And that's part of God's goodness. As we study, we've been looking at the last few weeks. Uh, thank you, Blake and Matt, for preaching the last couple weeks, and thank you for that opportunity. Last two weeks, three weeks ago now, it's hard to believe, we saw the faithfulness of God. Well, last week, as you'll see up on the screen, we saw the love of God. Thank you, Matt, for bringing that encouraging and challenging message last week. This week, the goodness of God from Nahum chapter 1. We will see that the judge appears, this God. The defendant is accused, and the verdict is given. I know it's always ironic how these biblical characters are named. This word Nahum is a book about judgment and God's goodness in the midst of that judgment. But do you know what his name means? His name means comfort. Think of the irony of that. And he's writing in a time when the Assyrian Empire, this great, mighty empire, was a superpower. And they were taking over everyone and everything and, and genocide and public torture were the stock and trade of their reign. They didn't care. They had no bounds, no limits. They didn't care. And when Nahum writes, he's writing at the midst of the, this nation of Syria's highest power. And the people are looking around saying, where is this justice? They didn't have movies to fall on like we have where we can get some fulfillment of that. They were just looking around saying, what is happening to our world today? This is crazy. God, where are you? God, where are you? And God promises in this small little book to bring down Assyria, to take it from its pride and cut it down, because God is going to do that, and he is good for doing that. But I want you to consider today what God's goodness means to you. Does it mean that whatever big thing is in your life, this world and all the problems, if those were to be cut down, that God is good? Is it that you get some sleep at night without any pain? What is God's goodness for you? God's ultimate goodness to us, folks, is in many things, but his ultimate goodness was that Christ died for our sins when we did not deserve it. And we're going to look at that today as we study God's goodness. If you're able to stand this morning, if you'll stand with me in the reading of God's word, we'll look at this uh, short little book in chapter 1. Short little book in chapter 1 as we go through it. Nahum writing uh, from are to the Assyrians in Nineveh, the capital, says this in verse 1. He says, An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the son of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. I want you to notice verse 7. 
but the Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into the darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. So trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. But thus says the Lord, Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I've afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I'll break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds on his head. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more will your name be perpetuated. From the house of gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains, verse 15, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall, your, shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. You know what that good news is he's proclaiming? It's the gospel, guys. It's the gospel. God is so good to us. Let's go as we pray before him this morning. Father, thank you for the reminder that, uh, Lord, you are going to set all things right. And Father, as we talk about your goodness in, in that aspect, would you give us great wisdom Father, forgive us our sins, for they are many, both corporately and privately and uh, in our families. Father, we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Father, for within you there is no unrighteousness. Father, we pray for that wisdom today. Pray for any needs in our congregation. Father, we submit them to you, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you, guys. So just a very little interesting book, but... As he opens up here in the first uh, eight verses or so, this is a time where it's basically a hymn of praise. And you'll notice this throughout uh, the first chapter here. It's a hymn of praise. And it's very familiar language. If you remember hearing some of this, uh, God is referred to by his covenant name, Yahweh, the Lord. If you notice in those first several verses here, he's used at least, uh, there's one, two, three, four, five, six times where the Lord is mentioned. This is not some random group of vigilantes trying to set things right. This is not a posse in an anarchist society. This is the Lord, the God, who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness coming to us. And Nahum places strong emphasis on the fact that God is holy and he's righteous. Many of these phrases are straight from the book of, of Exodus. We studied this a few weeks back. But friends, this is no abstract description of God. You know, sometimes we talk about people like, man, he's a mountain of a man. And then I walk in and you just get, you get not, you know, it doesn't work that way. Or man, I, he ran the 100 meter dash in 7.76 seconds. Man, well, Usain Bolt ran it in 9.4 and that's a world record. You know, sometimes we give these big descriptions and there's nothing to it, right? Guys, these are no abstract descriptions of God. These are the descriptions of a warrior judge. And what does all creation do? I want you to look back at these verses. Look at this. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And he is in the whirlwind, the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. Who can stand before his indignation? This is a picture, if you were to go read uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. On that last day, heaven and earth are fleeing away. 
It's like you're walking down the hall and all these great beings are walking away. And that's why if you're not a Christian here today, you can never stand before the God in his goodness and just simply say, Lord, well, I'm just going to get it right with God. God, you're good, right? Well, I've been good. Friends, heaven and earth are fleeing away at this God. He is that powerful, that powerful. And God is going to his courtroom in this clash, and there's a strife of real life, and Nineveh is at the center of his crosshairs because of their wickedness. But let's talk about it. That, that you say, Darren, that's more of God's judgment, right? Guys, this is God's goodness. God has always been good from the beginning. He's been originally good. God is the chief good. God is the chief goodest, if you want to use the little kid phrase, right? Everything from God is good. Think back to Genesis. Those of you who know your Bibles well, Genesis 1, God created and he rested and he said it was good. It's good. It's good. God is good to all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Two weeks ago at Easter, snow fell on the just and the unjust. Friends, our God, our bodies are God's goodness. Our families are God's goodness. The fact that we have air is God's goodness. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. God is always good. His goodness just means that he is originally good. Everything he does is good. And the greatest good he can do someday is to set all things right so the judge appears. If you're not a Christian here today, the first application point I can have for you is simply this. You find that you are most safe when you are in most need of God. Friends, there's no greater refuge. There's no greater place to go. There's no greater place you can find yourself than to know that you are safe in God's arms. But let's be honest here. This isn't just the good This isn't just the God that some people throw out in society, politicians or superstars. Well, God is there. It may be, but generally it's not. This is the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible says that someday all of our sins will be before him. If you're not a Christian, that may sound odd, doesn't it? Well, if God is good, then why would he care what I do with my life? Shouldn't he just let me live how I should live? It's a great question. Parents, do you go up to your kids and say, hey, here's the keys to my car. You're nine years old. Here's my bank account. You, here's four digits. Just type them in. You can have all the money in your life. Parents, would you be good parents if you let your kids just run amok with whatever you gave them? Yes. Nick, you said yes, and uh, I'll talk to your mom after this, okay? <laughs> Nick, is, uh, Nick is our comic relief on Wednesday nights at Awana, and I love him for it. He's a good guy. But, you know, of course not. Because that's making God out to be who you want them to be. Parents, that would be your kids making your parenting skills out to what they want you to do. If you're not a Christian here today, you've often confused the idea of good and the idea of safe. We think that God will keep the order of things and not interfere with our plans if we just let it be. Friends, it is in the safety and comfort of God's goodness that you will find refuge, a shelter on that day when he returns. It is because God is good that he gave us Jesus Christ. It's because God is good that he loves us so much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you're a Christian here today, I think this first point the judge appears is, how does this strike you? Christian, you may recoil at this thought that God is coming again, but comfort in sin and understanding of the gospel do not go together. That's the second application point. 
Comfort and sin and understanding of the gospel do not go together. If you're a Christian here today, the evidence that you are a Christian is that God deals with your sin because he's good. God loves us so much that he shows us our sin. Aren't you grateful for that? Many of you have had people along your path that you've walked in life, that you have been going the way you shouldn't have gone, and they've come along against all your wishes, and they've said, no, you need to go this way because whatever reason, that's not the way to go. And aren't you grateful for those people in your life? You may not be in that moment, but eventually, if you're coming to your senses, you respect that person for what they did. It took boldness, it took love, and it took humility at times to go to you and say, you're dead wrong on this go this way. Christian, that's exactly what God has done for you. His goodness is shown in that he told you you're going this way. Hey, squirrely guy, come over here and go this way. This is where the truth is at, and that is all by his grace. But remember, this is a message of hope. It's a message of hope. He is coming, Nahum is coming with God's word and saying, look, I'm going to judge this wicked, wicked city, but Judah, my people, there is safety here. There is safety here. Here, look back at verse 7. It says, it says, The Lord is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. Who can take refuge? He knows those who take refuge in him. Friends, a couple things on that. God not only is going to be our shield against his wrath, he's done that in Jesus, but he also knows those who are his. This is why God is good to you. He not only shields you from what's coming, but he holds you forever in his grace. And that is our God. And he's, this prophet Nahum is telling you, don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies of people saying this is never going to happen, that God's never going to save you. Friend, that's what people tell us today. Christian, you are safer in God's arms than you will ever be anywhere else. And that is the gospel truth. So Christian, let me end with this point on this. this. What causes you to doubt the truth that God is good to you in the midst of a society that is all over the place? Because our weakness is no reason to doubt God's strength. Our weakness is no reason to doubt God's strength. What foe has shown up in your experience? Maybe it's a financial bill. Maybe it's a relational issue. Maybe it's, I don't know, fill in the blank what problems we have today. Friends, God is good enough to shield you, as Blake said, from the wrath of God. How much more is he good to take care of you in the little and big things of this life? What a good God he is. The judge arrives, but he still takes care of his own. He still takes care of his own. You know, there's a story about a man uh, in the Chinese emperor's orchestra some 700 years ago. Uh, It's that great phrase, face the music. And this man could not play the flute. He was probably like I was in sixth grade. They said, a one, you play this instrument. A three, you get to go to gym class. I got a three on every instrument so I could go to gym class. This is the... This guy and I have a lot in common. But he could not play the flute, this Chinese man, but he could dramatically sound like he was making some sound. So when the orchestra was playing, he got in the flow. You know how orchestra people are, you orchestra folks, band folks. You just get in the groove, right? And he's a good charlatan. And he got a modest salary out of this. He got a pretty good place in Chinese society. And he enjoyed his deceptive trappings until the emperor one day started calling up all the musicians one by one to play a solo in front of him. This man desperately tried to take flute lessons, and he couldn't make a sound to save his life. He couldn't do it. 
He, in desperation, he said he was sick. He, he tried everything to get out of playing in front of the emperor because if the emperor found that he was not a flute player, he would be taken out. And so he did what, unfortunately, most people would go to. He took suicide and he lost his life. And this has become a historical bit in China, but this is also where we get the phrase. How many have heard this phrase before? Face the music. We have. Friends, someday we will all face the music, and there's no playing the flute to make it sound like you're doing well enough. Christian, be glad today God has satisfied all your needs in Christ because he is good. Non-Christian, if you're here today, one day God will call you to account before him. And trust me, there's no lesson that I can give you better than to know Jesus Christ. God is good in those things. Let's go on to the second point. So we see the judge is arriving. The judge is coming. No one can stand in his power. The judge appears. Now the defendant is being accused. The defendant is being accused. Look back at verses 9 through 11 quickly. He says, What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end of trouble and will not rise up a second. Make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they're like an entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. For you came from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Who's he referring to here? Well, it's those who stand opposed to God. Specifically in the passage, it's the uh, presumptuously the king of Assyria, the king who was standing against the people of Israel, the one who had basically laid waste their their uh, homeland, who had laid waste the people of Israel. God now calls him to the carpet. God says, look, this is your judgment day. The judge is here. The defendant is accused. The defendant is laid out. You may see that phrase there. Um, some of you may have the phrase son of Belial. You may have that in your uh, um, uh, Bible. Some translations carry that. The phrase here is literally son of worthlessness. God is literally telling that this people, Assyria, that his goodness is going to take care of is a reference to Satan himself. It brings in the focus, folks, the cosmic battle going on here. Friends, don't believe for one minute that Satan is some guy with a pitchfork and a red little tail walking around, right, to poke people someday uh, in the other side. That's from Dante's Inferno, if you're into history. That's, that's medieval stuff. Look, is Satan real? Yes, he is. Has God defeated Satan once and for all? Yes, he has. But is Satan and all his minions, all his goons, doing all the work that they can to get you off track from following what God has for your life in Jesus Christ? You better believe it. Don't for one second think this is just about Israel being saved from a wicked nation. Friend, this is about the struggle that goes on day and night as Satan tries to claim something that is not his own. Assyria is opposed to God, this, this kingdom, and behind all of this is Satan and his personal opposition to God. You know, sometimes people say, well, the devil made me do it. Have you ever heard that before? Anyone ever heard that before? Maybe you've said it before. Friends, look, your sin is your sin. That's why as you look at verses 9 through 11, do you see that word? It's used over and over. You know, you plot against the Lord. You have done this. You have done that. For one minute, do not think that this is just some abstract person. Satan made me do it. Friends, this is the people of Assyria who have sinned greatly. 
And God is going to visit them for that. And it refers to us as well, because friends, we are that you, even today. You know, we may not have had genocide or, or, or anything like that, but our hearts are equally sinful before the Lord. And that's why the first application point Andy's going to throw up there is this, is that believing in your own version of God is not believing in God. It's just believing in yourself. See how easy that line can be crossed? You can deceive yourself and think, I've got this God. God is so good to me. But friend, if you don't know Christ, then you don't have the greatness of who God is. If you don't have Jesus, then you miss who God is. You miss who God is. You know, I can remember about three years ago, and I'll publicly say this, because my, my wife and I joke as we've gone through several background checks over the years. Uh, my, I always kid my wife about the one ticket she got like 15 years ago or something like that. But my wife will probably remember this. The one ticket I got was three years ago, right after Simeon was born. Babe, you remember this? And I was pulling off. I was on 39th Street, Nolan Road. I was late to the NAI downtown. I was going to be late to work. We were sleep deprived. Simeon wasn't sleeping. We were at our wits end. And I'm, of course, there's a left-hand turn off Walgreens on 39th and the end of Nolan Road right there. And there's a cop behind me. The light turns yellow. And what do you usually do when the light turns yellow in a left-hand turn? Well, well, you don't. I sped up, yeah. And that cop sped up with his lights going on too. And we, we parked in the gas station right there. And I just remember thinking, Lord, you've called me to do this. You've called me to do that. You've called me to be father. Nothing's going right. God, you're good. Why am I getting this ticket? Why? And I just remember being so scowled that whole day in my heart and my mind. First, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to get tickets, right? Because that's, that's just not supposed to happen. But I remember just thinking, God, you're not this good. And I can just remember in the back of my mind saying, Darren, just because you're a pastor, does that mean you're above reproach? Darren, you have sinned in speeding in front of a cop on a yellow light going as fast as you can to get around that light. But God is still good. And I appreciate God making that happen. And I and, uh, thank God for the money to pay the lawyer not to do the other side of that. But friends, you see how easy we can deceive ourselves. You see how easy it is. And that's what Assyria had done is we don't, we don't need this God. Who is this God of Israel? We're the mighty, powerful nation of Assyria. Friends, you cannot live as your own master. You are called, if you're a Christian here today, you have a master, and he's a good one. His name is Jesus Christ, and love him dearly. Love him dearly. And this also speaks, I think the second thing we see here is that Nahum draws a connection between the wickedness of the nation's leaders and the nation itself. This is the second point. All the leadership skills in the world cannot replace a desperate love for Jesus Christ. Look, I don't know about you, and that's the second point that'll be up there. I don't know about you. I know some people who can take a box and make it walk at the time it says to make it walk. They can make a tree move because they just have the leadership stuff. Friends, you can have the most leadership in the world. This is why, Christians, you are called to pray for your leaders. I don't care if they're Republican. I don't care if they're Democrat. I don't care if they like the penguins in Antarctica and want America to move down to Antarctica. I don't care. You pray for them. If they're not a Christian, what do you pray for your leaders? You pray that God, by his grace, first off, would convert their heart to know Jesus Christ. If they are not a Christian, that they also would have the wisdom to lead. But what if they are a Christian? And I think these are becoming fewer and farther between, not just in name, but actual believers in politics. What do you pray for them? You pray that their love for politics, their love for policy, their love for procedure takes a backseat to their love for Jesus Christ. 
That is what you pray. As we're in an election season and we do not endorse candidates from the pulpit, friends, we don't do that for various reasons. But one thing I can tell you to pray is pray for your leaders in that way. If they don't know Christ, and I think there's a big argument most don't, pray that they would be converted. If they do know Christ, pray that their love as a desperate love for Jesus. Because Nahum here says, look, your leaders have been wicked and because of that you have a wicked nation. Are we praying that God would take what we know inside and put it out to those who are leading? You say, Darren, maybe it's not just politics. Maybe you serve in a local government. Maybe you serve at a PTA. God loves PTA because they do great work. Maybe it's a whatever it is. You're a leader. Would you pray for your leaders? You know, and I, I'm sharing a lot of personal stories here. Natalie and I just moved into a homeowners association. We don't really know what all that entails but we, I threw my name in the hat to get to know our neighborhood this last week because they need people to serve on the board. Why? So we can influence for Jesus Christ. Say, so Darren, I only, I only stay at home. I, I'm not as active as I used to be. Would you pray that God would use you to lead in whatever way that is? Maybe it's just being there for your family. But the more you desperately love Jesus, the more your leadership makes sense. The more your leadership makes sense. Last thing I'll say is this on this point. The defendant is accused. He's told them, look, the judgment's coming. God and his goodness and his holy standard is going to judge you, Assyria. The last thing is this, is he says, is overcoming spiritual opposition is a battle God himself must win. God himself must win. Notice in the passage, guys, it's God who will make a complete end through his goodness to all this wickedness. It's not politics. It's not procedure. It's not policy is God. And friends, as you evangelize, I just want to remember this. Christian, if you're here today, just remember that you are in a spiritual war when you go to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a spiritual war. Ephesians 6 says, we war not with flesh and blood, but we war against the what? The principalities and the things that cannot be seen. As you are praying for someone Christian, remember that it is God himself who gives the direction for those things in your life. It is God himself. He is the one who sets it up. Look, here at Tower View, we have said this. Blake and I were having this conversation right before service about some people. We said, you know, they would fit well in Tower View because everyone seems to fit well in Tower View. Congregation, let me give you a big pat on the back for just being an amazingly loving group of people. Can we do that? You can clap at that if you want to clap at that. You can. And it's not us, it's the Lord. We know that. But I just want to say thank you for being a welcoming community. Thank you for being open to people of all sorts of things. And thank you, many of you, who share convincing arguments. And these are all great things. But friends, ultimately, just like we see here in Nahum, a person to come to Jesus Christ is when God moves on that person's heart. Say, how do I pray for my friend who doesn't know Christ? Would you pray their spirit would turn the, God's spirit would turn them inside out and upside down for his glory? That's God's goodness. Do you know that people often come to Jesus Christ when times are the worst? Why is that? Why do you think that is? Because when all things are good, what happens in your life? What do you start saying? I've got this made. Man, I got this down. I can go to work. I get a paycheck. My wife and I get along enough to make things work, and my kids are, well, they're okay. They're not getting in trouble. So life must be good. Friends, people need Christ often like the Assyrians needed Christ often when things are upside down, topsy-turvy. Would you pray this week if someone needs to know Christ that they would know him through the, sometimes the tough things of life? 
Any Masters fans out there? Any golf fans out there? Jerry Dewey, where are you at? Jerry Dewey, our resident golfer. Every Wednesday, this man's golfing. If you need golf lessons, talk to Jerry. He can give it to you. You know, the Masters is this weekend. I don't know if you watch golf. Many of you would rather sleep for 12 hours than watch golf. I'm that way with NASCAR. I love you guys, but NASCAR is not my thing. But there's a man named David Faraday, and David Faraday is a well-known commentator. He's up on the screen. He told a story about a golfer back in the 70s. He didn't give his name, but back at the Masters, they had to use the caddies from the local uh, stage. And this uh, golfer was apparently pretty good, and he told the caddy, he said, I don't want your advice all weekend. Be quiet. Shut up. I'll tell you when I want you to speak. Well, this great golfer got on the 10th hole, and he shanked it into the, uh, the, the trees, and, and, and his ball landed there. And this man was pretty prideful, and he explained to his caddy how he's going to hit it this way, hit it that way, and it's going to go right on the green. And you know what? He hit it, and it ended up right on the green. And he looked at this man with this prideful smirk. You know what I'm talking about? Like, look at me. I got this down. And he said, how was that? Remember, the caddy's not supposed to say anything. Caddy opens his mouth, and the caddy says, sir, that wasn't your ball. (laughs) Oops. Friends, make sure you're swinging at the right things this week. Do you have a desperate love for Jesus more than you have of anything else in your life? That is the goodness of God. The goodness of God is he's going to set all things right. The judge is coming. The defendant is there. And the verdict finally, the last three verses, the verdict is given. The verdict is given. The verdict is given. After this dramatic scene, look back at verse 12. God God lays the hammer down. He says, thus says the Lord, though they are, this is Assyria, though Assyria is full of strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though, and now he's talking, uh, he goes on, though I've afflicted you and I'll afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from uh, among you and will burst your bonds apart. God tells his people, look, you're suffering I'm a good God. I see your suffering. I, I, I don't forget this stuff. I see it coming. And here's what I'm going to do for you guys. The verdict is coming. Assyria is done. We are done. And he says, first, the Assyrian empire is ending. And secondly, he says that Judah will be free of their enslavement. Guys, I am so glad that God looked down at us, helpless as we were, and said, you may go free because of my son. Don't ever doubt God's goodness in your life, Christian. The verdict is, is that Assyria is eventually going to their own funeral. And the second invitation here is that Judah gets to go to a celebration. What a great party that would have been. Forty years later, after Nahum wrote this, Judah did in fact hear the news that Assyria finally died off. If you remember, the book of Jonah was written around this time. Who did Jonah go to? He went to the Assyrians. Remember this? And Jonah preached to them. And do you remember what happened, church? What happened to them? They turned around, right? There was a little stay in that execution. But if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to see this first application point. Do you realize that it's only in the gospel of Jesus that you get the verdict before the performance? What does that mean? It simply means that the verdict is not that you know some ancient history, not that you hear some quaint little story, It's that on the day God has given you, non-Christian, the verdict already. He's told you that money, that ease, that comfort, success, that your own strength will never get you there, will do you no good. The only thing that God has given you is a verdict. God has given you the bad news now. 
you know, we have had a lot of house repairs done lately, and I have appreciated those men that we have had say, this is what it's going to cost, this is what it's going to be. You know, we've had repair people before come to our house at various times and say, this is what it's going to be, and you get to the end, and, you know, this big charge gets tacked on. Anyone else been there before? Guys, God is being very clear here. He's not a devious salesperson. He's saying, look, here's the verdict. The verdict is, is that you need me. I am good enough as God to let you know there is no other one but me. Come to me, all you who are weary and laden, and I will give you rest. That is what God has given us. And that's why, Christian, if Jesus is Lord, you don't invite someone like that to give you advice. You let them rule in your life is the next application point for you. If you're a Christian here today, the same invitation is to you. Christian, the goodness of God is that we have this Bible. We have this word. Man, we, how often we take this for granted. How many are electronic Bible people? Lots of hands go up. How many are still paper, old school? I say old school. Been around for 1,900 years. You know what? I don't care if you read it electronically or whatever. Get into it. Because, friends, here's what it is. If Jesus is Lord, this is not just good advice to get through your day. This is wisdom that shows his goodness on every page. How many people across the world long for stories like this? Long to hear the Bible as it is. You know, we have 100 Bibles today. We have camouflage Bibles. We have women's Bibles, men's Bibles, skater Bibles, muscle men Bibles, runner's Bibles. Can we just get back to the Bible? <laughs> Look, do you realize it is that the verdict has been given, but Christian, have you let other things inform how you are to live this life? The verdict is in. Jesus taught people that the truth is that forgiveness is only in him. Christian, are you living out his goodness through the fact that he has given you redemption? Do you need to show forgiveness to someone this morning? Do you need to extend that to someone this morning? And you say, well, God hasn't been very good to me. That's the last point. Pouting is evidence that you're not content with the goodness of God. Pouting is evidence that you're not content with the goodness of God. God is good, folks. He's a refuge to all who take refuge in him. But because he's good, he also will judge the world. The cross is proof of that. On that day, you will appear before God, but he is still good. He's still so good. The only question is, what is the verdict in your life? Do you know Christ? Do you not? Do you know Christ or do you not? Now, I have to end with a, a story of three ladies in a senior citizen home, and I think it's very apropos for this morning. You know, three women were living in a senior adult facility, and they got into a spat that ultimately led to a court case. True story. And each accused the other of having irreconcilable differences with the other. And they created problems that couldn't be solved, so they had to go to the court case. And when the judge opened the case, he wisely stated, will the people come forward? And they did. And he said, I will now hear your grievances, starting with the oldest lady first. And you know what? None of them went forward. Case dismissed. Just like that. <laughs> Look, friends, that's a silly illustration. We don't need anyone to step forward to say that God is good, do we? God is always good. And we can, you know what, if you want to argue about something in church, argue about how God has been good to you. Is your light bill paid this month? Do you have food in your belly? Do you have a roof over your head? Do you have a church that loves you? If you're newer to our church, you know our church does love you. Do you have 
Lord, do you have health? Even if you're breathing and it's hard and you hurt, do you have health? God is good. Christian, do you have Jesus Christ? God is good. I told you that God is good because your sin has been taken away, and that is the goodness of God today. There's so much we could talk about on this, but friends, I want you to know that God is working all things to those that he is working to. This week, big question comes up with this. If God is so good, pastor, why is there evil and suffering in the world? You check out our website in a few days. That'll be up. But if you're here today, rejoice in the fact that the goodness of God has been shown to you in Jesus Christ. Let's go before the Lord and pray. Father, thank you for the day as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Father, as we get ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. Father, for the third time in almost four or five weeks, thank you for that reminder. Father, I pray today as we look back at Assyria and how you dealt with them and your goodness. Father, as we are looking around our world and we look at things that are not right. Father, we often look to movies for those things. But Father, may we look to you. We know in this world not all things will be set right. Father, you do in your grace and providence sometimes set things right the way they should be through your human instruments. But ultimately, it comes to that great day. So Father... Help our hearts to trust not in what we see, but in the one who is unseen, and that is you. Father, when things are going sour this week at home, at work, or wherever it is, may we trust in your goodness that you truly do work all things out, not according to our plan, but according to the plan of your goodness that you've predestined, preplanned, sovereignly in your grace. Father, we just thank you so much for Christ. We pray this all in his name, in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have the deacons who are serving the uh, Lord's Supper this morning. Go ahead and come this way. Uh, Gentlemen, if you will.